technology. It's advancing faster than most of us can comprehend. The old 16 by 9 rectangles give way to the little 16 by 9 rectangles, give way to VR goggles and contacts and chips in the brain. And it will have a big impact on our lives and livelihoods. Synthetic biology, improving biology and redesigning organisms for beneficial purposes. A sort of digital Downton Abbey where we don't ask Echo what's the weather or Google what's the weather, we just say what's the weather. And with the big advances come big opportunities and risks. We have to figure out a new age, that means dramatic changes to the structure of our economy and our society. The World Economic Forum and the Government of Japan brought together leaders from governments, academia, business and civil society from 125 countries for a global technology governance summit to look at the big challenges posed by these big advances. Foresight is not about making predictions, it's about preparation, making better decisions in the present. On this episode of Radio Davos, I'm joined by Ina Fried, Chief Technology Correspondent at Axios, for a look at the best moments from the Global Technology Governance Summit. Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts, and please take a moment to like, rate, and review us. Where do we have an advantage over a super intelligent machine? It's actually in knowing what it's like to be a human being. With a glimpse into the future from the Global Technology Governance Summit, this is Radio Davos. Welcome to Radio Davos. Helping me look at some of the best bits of the Global Technology Governance Summit is Ina Fried, Chief Technology Correspondent at Axios. Hi, Ina. How are you? Good. How are you? Not bad at all. Where, where are you today? I'm in San Francisco. San Francisco in the heart of it. Silicon Valley or close by? Definitely. Uh, been here with a front row seat for the last 20 years. So tell us, what, what have you been doing in in that area in the last 20 years? I mean, I've covered everything from Apple and Microsoft for CNET. Uh, then I was at All Things D, where I covered a lot of the mobile revolution uh, and I've been at Axios leading our overall tech coverage for the last four years and really had a chance to see tech go from a niche to pervasive. I, I think it's hard to talk about our modern world without technology. And, you know, it's usually promised early on. We were promised most of the things we're just getting. And then it takes time to really deliver that. But if you look at, you know, especially I think the pandemic has really brought that into relief, you know, just seeing, imagine if we'd been hit with this pandemic a decade or two earlier and how much more of society would have had to shut down. A lot of that is thanks to technology. But then if you look at COVID misinformation on the flip side, technology is also making life harder. So I'm definitely a realist, not a, not a utopian. Great. Well, you've mentioned a lot of the things we're going to touch on in this episode. You've mentioned the, the COVID effect, which also will touch on this idea of the digital divide, because people who didn't have access to that technology, if they're school children or students, or people who weren't in a work situation where uh, they couldn't work from home in lockdown, have had a very different experience over the last year. Um, you've talked about the technologies that promise so much. We're going to be hearing from a couple of futurists, my favourite job title of all, and many other things besides. Um, so you produce a daily uh, newsletter for Axios on technology. Is that right? What kinds of things, you know, what, what are the hot topics at the moment? Yeah, I mean, it's it's everything from the union push at Amazon to how misinformation is fueling hate to uh, really the fundamental technology advances that will hopefully, you know, allow us to deal with some of our greatest obstacles. So again, I think, you know, really looking at the good and the bad, and we do that every day at Axios Login. It's a free daily tech newsletter. Well, that's the kind of things they were looking at, or you indeed were looking at, because you moderated one of the sessions at the Global Technology Governance Summit. It went over two days, 
There were literally thousands of participants. We won't be able to do it justice here. We're just going to play our listeners a few clips, go through a few of the main themes. But why don't we start with the session that you moderated? It was called, well, it was about responsible innovation. There were speakers from PayPal and Facebook and others. And in your introduction, you said something along the lines of, Tech developers are so excited to find out what they can do with technology, they don't often ask if they should be doing it. Let's hear from Zvika Krieger, who's Director of Responsible Innovation at Facebook, uh, on that panel that you moderated. And he's saying how tech companies like his are asking that question, that should we be doing this at the earliest stages of product development? In, in my experience at Facebook, so many of the issues that I deal with are about you know, a well-intentioned product that might actually have um, unintended consequences. And the earlier that you can surface those concerns, the more effectively you can address them before launch. Something that, that happened recently is that in light of the, the interest and excitement this summer in the United States around racial justice in the Black Lives Movement, there was a lot of excitement about how do we support Black-owned businesses. And so uh, one of our teams uh, on Instagram wanted to create uh, a sticker for um, buy black so that people can show their support for um, for black owned businesses. And while that was obviously a very uh, well-intentioned product and, and could bring a lot of benefit and really help elevate um, economic justice and opportunity for a historically underrepresented group, there's also a trade-off where it, by highlighting a marginalized or, or historically marginalized or vulnerable group, you may actually be put, making them a target of increased uh, harassment or abusive behavior. And so what we were able to do was uh, provide teams with guidance that when you are creating well-intentioned products to help advance racial justice, you actually need to look out for where might some of those uh, increased risks for abuse might be. And so the Instagram team was actually able to learn both from uh, from other teams at Facebook that have grappled with similar challenges by to uh, connect with external experts who could help them anticipate where those uh, higher vectors for uh, abuse might be and make sure to put in place the resources and the support needed for those communities before we were able to launch to ensure that they had a safe experience on the platform. That was Vika Krieger of Facebook. Ina, this was the Global Technology Governance Summit, looking at how global technology could be better governed. And we'll get onto that in more detail later. But before we get to that stuff, let, let's, let's start with the fun things about technology. What's new and what's cutting edge in tech? Some of the sessions at the summit were about that. You've been in Silicon Valley for a couple of decades. Do you still get excited by, by new technology? What are the kinds of things that stop you in your tracks? Or are you jaded now? It's like, oh, I've seen it all before. No, there's definitely moments that, that really break through. And I love technology. I wouldn't be writing about it. I think it's true that I've spent more of the last couple of years looking at technology's shortcomings because I think it's vital and it's important that we spend time. But we shouldn't overlook the positive contributions either. You know, I remember the first time I saw multi-touch, both on Microsoft had a thing called the Surface, not what we think of today as the Surface. It was this giant tabletop computer uh, the size of a sit-down Pac-Man machine for some of the older listeners. Um, I remember those. And you could you could touch and manipulate objects with, your, with several fingers. And then, of course, the same thing came around the same time uh, to our phones with the iPhone, which was this 
touchscreen piece of glass that we really hadn't seen anything like it. And those innovations, I mean, certainly the first time you you experience it. Um, today, I get some of that around um, virtual and augmented reality. They're at an earlier stage. They're going to take longer to roll out because it's such a fundamental shift. But I think um, there's huge potential there. And you can see where that's going to go, even though it's very rough and crude today and the devices are bulky and the battery life isn't good. Those are all problems that technology knows how to solve. Um, But, you know, as we got into in the summit, the other pieces, they're also going to take time for society to figure out how we want to use them. So if you talk about augmented reality glasses with facial recognition, tremendously helpful. It can tell me who you are, when we last spoke, all that stuff. But it's also recording the world around it. What does that mean for me? What does that mean for the people I'm inadvertently recording? So a lot to be excited about, but also a lot of questions to answer. That, that was a big thing, wasn't it? A couple of years, well, probably many years ago now, Google Glass. I mean, whatever happened to that? Well, I think the product was way ahead of its time. It, it really wasn't practical. It didn't deliver enough value. The good thing I will say about Google Glass is it raised our attention early on to what will become a mainstream piece of technology. It won't look that much like Google Glass, but Google Glass at least got that societal conversation happening. And I think that was a big key at the uh, summit and just in general, this idea that, you know, the tech companies need to get better at, at asking questions of should they, but also we as a society and as countries need to set some rules on what is and isn't permissible, because that is a big piece of things is setting down some guidelines. And we don't really have that uh, in most countries on things like facial recognition, algorithms, and, and really now is the time. So let's let's look at a session, a, a really good fun session that happened at the uh, the summit called Transformation in Action: Positive Futures. As well as having professor a professor of computer science and a professor from a business school, it had a science fiction writer, uh, Malka Older, who's the author of titles including Infomocracy, if I've said that right, and State Tectonics. And they discussed how life imitates art when it comes to technology. Um, Are you a sci-fi fan as well as a technology buff, Ina? You know, I'm not a huge sci-fi fan, but I I do think there have been so many interesting moments where we've modeled our real-world technology development on things we we saw years, decades ahead sometimes. Uh, So I think of, you know, Minority Report and the idea of, you know, physically manipulating information uh, and having it come back to life and be tactile. Or I think of I Was Knight Rider was my big thing as a kid watching that and kit the self-driving car and now we're you know four decades later and that's starting to become a reality turbo boost i think might be a few years off uh but at least the self-driving part and the consequences are so profound so i think sci-fi has played a huge role in uh opening our imagination to what's possible and even starting to discuss the downsides well this is our our first futurist of the episode it's mike betchell Chief Futurist at Deloitte, talking about how the themes of sci-fi are often very sinister. And he also, after that, he goes on to talk about some of the tech that he's excited about right now, including what he's calling ambient tech. I think a lot of science fiction, certainly a lot of the science fiction I grew up with, um, presumed these malevolent, sentient baddies. And, you know, whether it's Skynet or whatever the, you know, Agent Smiths were called in The Matrix... Uh, a lot of this was something to be feared. And uh, as a technologist, working with a team of technologists, we tend to see the future is a little more technologically neutral. 
Now, that's not to say that the anthropological, sociological stuff isn't material. It's just to say we look a little more at the tech. And for us, it, it tends to be a story of three enduring trajectories. I mean, since Charles Babbage and Ada Lovelace designed the first computer concept in the 1840s, uh, computers have really been about interaction, information, and computation. Uh, and they always carry different names, right? Uh, the old 16 by nine rectangles give way to the little 16 by nine rectangles, give way to VR goggles and contacts and chips in the brain. But you know, over the next 10 years, I think it's gonna be about moving beyond the device. Uh, about, you know, we can't realistically have 15 smart speakers everywhere we go. And so I, I, one of our big uh, research findings is that we're going to be moving to what we call ambient experiences, which is shorthand for a sort of digital Downton Abbey, where we don't ask Echo, what's the weather, or Google, what's the weather? We just say, what's the weather? And the right agent jumps up at the right time to give the right answer. That was Mike Betchell of Deloitte. And on the same panel, here's another futurist, Amy Webb, who's a professor at NYU Stern School of Business, who picked out the areas of technology that are yielding big developments right now and that will, it, she thinks, in the near future. So the first is that we're synthesizing human workflows. Some of this you're already familiar with, things like using artificial intelligence for natural language processing and, and robotic process automation. Some of the places where we're seeing Advancements is just in making those systems better. We have much more data than we used to. Many more companies that are trying to figure out from end to end how to automate some of these things. Um, and in the past year, there were applications built uh, to detect virus mutations, um, which melds together, you know, science and AI. Um, so these are interesting opportunities on the horizon that you could argue point toward workforce people losing their jobs in the workforce. But um, I think we're, we're a little far away from having computational models that make sense. Um, but the technology is improving in an interesting way. Synthetic media uh, is another key area. So we tend to think of deep fakes as synthetic media. This is essentially swapping somebody's face onto somebody else's body. This is within the realm of artificial intelligence, but also includes algorithmic scoring and recognition and even media storage. And there's much more happening beyond simply replicating somebody's face or creating a chatbot. And there, there are lots of applications. One interesting application is something called diminished reality. People tend to lump together VR and AR. They're very different technologies, but diminished reality is removing things away. So if you've got a pair of noise canceling headphones, you've already got DR. What's on the horizon are diminished reality glasses that look very much like what I'm wearing. Um, that would allow you to remove things from your point of view, from your view, whether that's garbage uh, or other people. Singapore um, has developed noise canceling windows. So it creates an anti-wave um, from, from what exists naturally. And what's so interesting about that is that in the near future, it could totally transform our cities um, and, and turn the volume down on all that extra noise. And you can also synthesize yourself um, and, and create synthetic characters. Obviously, there are lots of horrific bad use cases, but let me tell you some positive use cases. Um, if you could synthesize an HR interaction, um, there's all this research showing that people are more responsive when they hear their personal details reflected back, like their name and their job and you know what they do. 
to simulate listening. Well, if you've got that packaged into an HR experience, um, that employee is much more likely to respond to training, um, to be much more compliant. They're going to be a better member of your workforce. And all this gets really interesting um, when you look at spatial computing, which is um, turning a physical environment into a computable one. And you can render digital uh, physical experiences combining all of these technologies together for things like um, city scale digital twins um, to, to run all types of tests and to do all types of learning. The third and possibly most important is synthetic biology. This is going to allow us um, very soon, it's, it's kind of an umbrella term, it's synthetic biology that includes CRISPR. Generally speaking, we're talking about improving biology and redesigning organisms for beneficial purposes. It's gonna allow us to not just edit genomes, but also, uh, and importantly, write a new code for life. We'll have write level permissions. Um, this could transform and will transform not just health, but also materials, the circular economy and fashion. Um, I, I can't think of a, an area in which we won't see a significant, um, a significant improvement. Um, and we already started to see some of that this year. COVID-19 vaccines, they make use of engineered code in the form of messenger RNA. Um, so there's great promise ahead, uh, obviously huge, peril. Um, so the end note to all of this is that foresight is not about making predictions. It's about preparation, making better decisions in the present. That was Amy Webb of NYU Stern School. She's a futurist, one of the futurists trying to guess what the next big things will be. Let's hear now from an industrialist who's putting some of these things into practice. This is Jim Hagemann-Schnaber, chairman of engineering titan Siemens, saying that the rate of change we've seen in the last decades in areas such as social media are only just starting to be replicated in industry as a whole. In my opinion, we've seen the first wave of uh, digitization, which was really around consumer apps. It was around social media and entertainment. And while that was an important, uh, let's say, new set of tools, um, I think this next wave, which I call the industrial digitization, is uh, dramatically more valuable and therefore one that we should pay even more attention to. It's the kind of transformation where we can solve the fundamental challenges that the world still has around creating sustainable energy systems, uh, sustainable trans uh, transportation systems. We can create uh, much more um, efficient manufacturing systems. Um, we will have uh, lifelong learning, uh, digitally supported, um, and ideally, um, healthcare systems that are more prevention-oriented than uh, fixing diseases-oriented. So many, um, I think, high-value opportunities when we take digital into an industrial context. Jim Hagemann-Schnaber, the chairman of Siemens. So, Ina, let's look at some of the major challenges, the risks of rapidly advancing technology. One of them was laid bare by the COVID pandemic. While many of us turned to technology to continue our work or education, in a way that most of us had not done before. Some of us will have done some of it, but the way day in, day out now, we're all relying on working from home. That showed us how essentially it's become to have access to the internet. I mean, in Silicon Valley, you're all bathed in the internet. You assume everyone's linked up to super high-speed internet, but that's not true even in the US and certainly not around the world. Is, is this a big problem, do you think? 
It is. And as you point out, it's it's not even the case that in a place as wealthy and advanced as Silicon Valley, everyone has access. Our son is in the San Francisco schools. And some of his classmates, as soon as school went remote, just dropped off. And that was even with, again, a fairly wealthy community. The school was able to give every student a Chromebook and had some hotspots for internet access. But, you know, it's not always even just access to the technology. You know, there's a lot of built-in assumptions that just aren't true. Um, Distance learning, especially for younger kids, assumes there's, you know, a parent there to proctor it. And some of us were doing our jobs from home over Zoom. uh, But really, the pandemic laid bare the fact that a lot of people's jobs can't be done uh, remotely. And so you had parents that had to go to work and lacked childcare, And it was an enormous burden. And technology was a piece of that digital divide. But that digital divide is really so much wider than simply, do I have access? Obviously, if you don't have access, the divide starts there. But it it also affects people even who have some access to technology. And also for years, we'd been measuring broadband access and including cell phones, uh, which is great. And cell phones can act as a modem. And, you know, I don't want to downplay the importance of having a fast internet connected cell phone but you know if you were going to make it through work and school over the pandemic in general you certainly needed access to a computer which many people didn't have and it's a, a global problem too exacerbating global inequalities let's hear a small clip from s iswaran he's the minister for communications and information of singapore covid-19 has really brought home the significance of digital technologies, not just from the point of view of strengthening our resilience in the battle against the pandemic, but also as the foundation for our post-pandemic recovery. And so I think globally, we have seen the center of gravity shift decisively towards the adoption of digital technologies. Having said that, the digital dividends, I think they coexist with the risk of a digital divide. Again, something that is the topic of this panel and also something that uh, all of us are very aware of. And I would say the digital divide, in a sense, manifests itself. It is both an urban-rural divide. It is also a developed country, developing country type divide. And also, even within developed countries, I think we are seeing a divide. S. Iswaran, Minister for Communications and Information of Singapore, talking about the digital divide. And what about the threat to jobs? The robots are coming for our jobs. Does it, clearly, your, your job should be pretty much secure. Um. Only to a degree. I mean, there's even journalist uh, bots, if you will, you know, things like writing a story after an earthquake. So I think, you know, one of the distinctions that a lot of people make is how much of the jobs are going away versus tasks. And I think we are right to look at tasks. Um, The great thing is a lot of us will have the most mundane aspects of our jobs automated. The problem is for some of us, most of our job is mundane tasks. 
Um, and so you, you look at even very skilled professions. The ones that come to mind so often are radiologists, where um, computers are getting really, really good at doing a lot of that job. Now, today it's true that the best radiology comes by combining experienced radiologists and the algorithms. But if you think about it, uh, a generation from now, there won't be the experienced radiologists because there won't be enough of them reading images day to day to have that expertise because the computers will do it. And that's, you know, sort of at one of the high end professions. And I think, you know, it is the case that innovation is going to come for a lot of jobs. I think there is the opportunity to create new jobs. And we always say that, again, the the optimists, the techno-optimists will have you believe that it'll all happen just smoothly and beautifully. I think it will happen, but I think it'll be a lot bumpier than some of the most optimistic forecasts. I think it will be very disruptive. I think we will get to another place where there are plenty of jobs on the other end and hopefully less time spent working in general. Um, but that will require a real economic and career reshaping for societies. Well, let's hear more on that topic from Stuart Russell, who's Professor of Computer Science at University of California, Berkeley. This is about how we should approach the rise of the robots. There's a huge debate among economists because in previous technological revolutions, employment may have dipped, but then comes back perhaps even better than before. Uh, the real question here is if we automate all the physical labor and then we automate all the mental labor, uh, what are all the new jobs going to be if they're not physical and they're not mental? The key question is, what are the roles for human beings? And I think the answer has to be, the roles are ones that involve interpersonal interaction. So situations where we want humans to be doing that thing or situations where humans have a competitive advantage. And where do we have an advantage over a super intelligent machine? It's actually in knowing what it's like to be a human being. So for example, if I hit my thumb with a hammer, you know what that's like because you're a human being and you've done it before uh, and you can empathize, you have the same nervous system. A machine can have a PhD in neuroscience and it can study our brains and so on, but it will never know what it feels like to hit your thumb with a hammer or to be left by your long-term lover or to lose a job or um, to win a prize or any of those things. So humans in this role, of uh, interacting with others to make our lives better, I think can have a wonderful future. In some sense, we're getting past the last 10,000 years where we've used humans as robots, engaging only a tiny fraction of human abilities uh, and forcing people into repetitive, tedious, uh, dead-end work for the most part. So the, the age of human robots is over um, and we have to figure out a new age. That means dramatic changes to the structure of our economy and our... Professor Stuart Russell of Berkeley, University of California. Let's turn now to regulation more in general, the regulation of big tech and also the taxation of big tech. Many of the concerns about technology um, and the, about the power of big tech are about things like how the companies use our data, how they manage dangerous or mendacious content online, big issue in the last year or so. Um, what are the concerns for you, Ina, when it comes to regulation kind of at a global level? Well, I think, you know, first and foremost, you want to make sure you're regulating the right thing. I think there's plenty of room for governments across the globe to step in and say, you know, here's where we see the boundaries of technology. Um, oftentimes, though, you have regulators really looking 
well into the past when it comes to where they're regulating. Um, when you look at a lot of the hearings that the Congress in the United States has had over the last few years, you know, the discussions have really gone uh, pretty far afield from sort of the pressing questions of the day. I'd love to hear more time spent on, you know, when and where will we allow algorithms to make decisions without human intervention? Uh, what rules do we have to ensure transparency, fairness, accuracy of these algorithms? You know, that's sort of where the industry is at. And, you know, we're still really talking about content moderation 101 in the U.S. and really, you know, sort of basic questions about when a tech company can and can't uh, moderate its content, how much responsibility it bears, which are important questions, but they're ones we probably should have answered two decades ago. Okay, well, let's hear from the chief executive of Salesforce, Mark Benioff, who's calling for more regulation, as I, as I think you were, not less. Well, technology has moved so quickly, I don't think everyone realizes the power of artificial intelligence or the power of this information. Technology, maybe they saw for the first time this year, in social media, the impact of this technology or bots, or even on an election, um, but it's happening every day in every facet of our life, whether we realize it's happening or not. And there's certain moments where the government needs to come in and revise and enhance regulations um, that no longer apply or used to apply and now no longer apply. And that's something that I've been advocating now for several years, exactly like you mentioned that the government needs to become more active and more aggressive in their regulation of these companies and what is happening. And I think it's happened a little too slowly for my taste. And um, I think that society, as in some parts of society specifically, have been damaged because governments have not moved quickly enough. And there's been not enough regulation and new regulation written to kind of support the new world that we're in today. Mark Benioff, the head of Salesforce, you're listening to Radio Davos, where we're having a look at the Global Technology Governance Summit. We'll be right back after this news of another podcast from the World Economic Forum. If you're going to lead other people, you need to start with yourself. How do you impact the world? That's a key question Hans Vestberg asks himself in his role as Verizon's CEO. Hans sees leadership as a profession, one he can constantly improve on, adapting to new needs and examining everything from his focus to his mood. This is super nerdy, I'm sorry, but I have everything in Excel. I can plot from 2009 every month up to 2021. Knowing the impact his role can have, he's dedicated himself to bridging connectivity gaps on a global scale, a move that can change lives and opportunities for billions. He'll talk about all that and more on the World Economic Forum podcast, Meet the Leader. I'm your host, Linda Lucina. Listen wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And this is Radio Davos, where we're looking back on the Global Technology Governance Summit. I'm here with Ina Fried of Axios. And we've just been hearing before the break there from Mark Benioff of Salesforce talking about wanting more regulation. Um, I guess the problem is there are so many companies doing so many different things, lots of different agendas, but also lots of different um, countries, very different outlooks. For example, even between, let's say, North America and Western Europe, can they ever be reconciled? What, what is the forum? I mean, may, perhaps the World Economic Forum is a place at least to discuss those, but a lot of these things will need some kind of overarching 
framework, won't they, some of these policy decisions? Yeah, I mean, it is very difficult. As you mentioned, there are very different societal attitudes. There's quite a difference to how uh, countries in especially Western Europe view things with a more privacy-centric and the individual should own their data rights to the United States where, you know, the corporations have more uh, leeway, but still, you know, some some real guardrails in place. And then, of course, the big discussion is sort of the Western approach versus China, where in China, you know, really this attitude that uh, the state has a right to look at everything, and that's just sort of the accepted starting point. And that's really the one that's most uh, coming to a head at the moment. I think the divisions between the U.S. and Europe are significant and show up, um, but to a greater or lesser degree, the U.S. And, and Europe tend to find a way to harmonize, even though they're coming from different places, whereas I think right now there is really a, a threatening a, a full schism between uh, the West and China over how to approach a lot of these fundamental questions, whether it's privacy, regulation, um, surveillance, uh, digital rights, all those things. I think that will be a very interesting dynamic that's certainly going to play out, not to mention the trade and economic tensions, especially since the global tech supply chain was really built globally with the US, China, and Europe all playing key roles. And now we're starting to see a lot more push for uh, interdependence uh, to be lessened and for self-sufficiency. So that's a huge list of extremely important issues, all of which were addressed to a greater or lesser extent at the summit. Let's have a look at, let's just pick up one kind of microcosm, one problem of the many that require some kind of regulation, and that is harmful content. Who polices what we see online? Violence, abuse, fake news. The summit heard from a couple of tech giants on how they were tackling the problem. And I think it's just interesting to, to put yourself in the shoes of, for example, the head of YouTube. How does a company like that stop bad stuff going onto their platform? This is Susan Wojcicki, the CEO of YouTube. So if you look at where we were in 2017 at this same time of the year, we've reduced this more by than 70%. And that is due to an incredible amount of hard work with machines and uh, also improving our policies. So not only did we significantly remove content that violates our policies uh, at that significant rate, but we also created a lot more policies that we had to remove. And uh, I mean, I would say the machines are good. We can find content uh, across the board, but uh, you know, something like uh, hate speech or so something that has a lot of context would be something that would be harder from a machine standpoint to be able to detect. But in the end, we've been able to really fine tune our machines so that we can find a lot of this content. And it is flagged, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's removed. So what happens is the machines will flag it and then it will be sent to human reviewers who will determine whether or not this is in fact violative or not. Susan Wojcicki of YouTube, and this is Simon Milner, Vice President Public Policy of Facebook in the Asia Pacific. I don't think anybody really wants Facebook or Twitter or Google deciding 
what's you know what, what what's true or not uh, we, we these independent third-party fact checkers uh, authorized by the ifcn are uh, exactly set up to do this and so we have a very well established process for working with them and for them to review content and for them to then for us to act on that uh, typically with a label uh, on content that's been deemed to be false and, and massively reducing uh, the distribution it gets uh, across our services that's been incredibly helpful for us uh, and including uh, uh, you know particularly for instance on the issue of covid misinformation uh, these partnerships have been very, very helpful for us to address the problem of misinformation, both about the, uh, the virus itself and now about vaccines. Three years ago, when we were looking to detect hate speech using technology, we would find around a quarter of the content that was violated, and we were finding it through technology. Now it's 97%. So that technology is constantly improving as the machines learn, as we uh, bring across more languages. But the, but human review is also very important because context really matters um, for much of this type of content. So, some things, frankly, th there's never a context. I mean, child sexual abuse, there's no context in which that is ever allowed uh, on our services. But there are some contexts where rather difficult content may be allowed because it's highlighting a, uh, an issue in society. It's, and so context matters. Simon Milner, Facebook, and before that, Susan Wojcicki of YouTube talking about how they can police harmful content themselves online. So what about the money? A lot of what we discuss here always comes down to money. How can we ensure that multinational tech companies are paying their fair share of tax? Often we're talking about taxing something which doesn't really seem to exist in a in a geography so where does it get taxed let's just hear before we discuss that from sharon burrow she's the general secretary of the international trade union confederation speaking at a session called taxing digital value ultimately business can't operate in this uncompetitive space nor can democracies regain or contain and regain trust of citizens so we must have a digital uh, tax at the moment, we absolutely support the OECD tax agenda, particularly Pillar 2, which would go a good part of the way by making a universal base, 25%, we would hope, for corporate taxation. And there's some hope with the US just having raised its tax base to 28% for corporations that this might um, actually come to fruition. At the moment, most corporations... Uh, or their advocates are arguing a much uh, lower rate. But that will be played out at the G20, and we absolutely support and think that the policy setting, minus perhaps the rate, is actually ready uh, to implement. We're big supporters of industry policy, innovation, but I ask you to look at the history. Corporations have taken more and more of the treasury pies in every country for what is actually investment in their own business model to the point where the trust is broken in most countries. And trust in the big tech companies is particularly broken because of the explosion of profit versus the, the taxation they're paying, or in fact, the wages they're paying, uh, you know, in the case of some of the big corporates uh, or the respect for freedom of association, particularly Amazon and the like. That was the voice of the workers then, Sharon Burrow, representing trade unions around the world. What's, what's your feeling about tax on on big tech or indeed small tech any tech companies how do we tax these products which are, don't physically always pass geographic barriers 
Well, I think there's two big issues when it comes to tax, and I'm not a tax expert, but one of those is just, you know, who gets taxed where? Um, and I think the tech companies have actually done a great job of pitting governments against each other. And, and what you'll see is companies locating subsidiaries wherever they think they'll pay the lowest taxes and, you know, really playing games with the numbers. And I think there's been a move in recent years to try and uh, stop some of that. And I think that makes sense. I mean, I think, you know, making sure that, you know, while countries can have different tax policies, they aren't racing to the bottom to give away their tax revenue to locate a few jobs. You know, not allowing that is probably good overall. The second area that you mentioned is much tougher. The question of, you know, how and where digital uh, services and goods should be taxed. And, you know, in Europe, there's a pretty big move to apply these digital taxes to companies like Google and Facebook that may not be um, collecting dollars in the same way, um, but are making ad revenue. And that's a much tougher question. And I think one that still remains to be sorted out. Well, France is one of those countries that have pushed ahead with tax policies of their own. Let's hear from France's Minister of State for the Digital Transition and Electronic Communication, Cédric O. Since we're talking about something that is uh, basically international, the, the, the solution should be multilateral. We need to find a multilateral uh, solution. This is why we have been backing for many years now uh, a solution uh, at first at the OECD uh, level, if not at uh, the European uh, the European level. But what we cannot condone is the fact that there is a huge democratic pressure on those questions of uh, uh, sharing the value on, or, on, uh, on the taxation. This is why some countries, in the meantime, uh, until we are able to find a solution at the international level, have decided, decided to take uh, the, uh, uh, the initiative. France is one of them, but this is not uh, the only one. French Minister for Digital Transition and Electronic Communication, Cédric O. And let's hear from a tech company now. This is uh, Josh Kalmer, who heads global public policy and government relations at a company we've all come to know and love, Zoom. From our perspective, the important things are, are twofold. Number one, that we look at digitization as a whole. Uh, certainly, there are some companies that are very significant players. Sometimes Zoom is included in that bucket, sometimes it's not. Um, but, but we're dealing here with a larger phenomenon where it's not just internet platforms, but services companies of all kinds providing services across borders digitally, often with no physical place of business. And so the, the phenomenon goes beyond uh, a small group of admittedly very important countries. The, the, the second point is that it really does have to be multilateral. And, and I commend Minister O and Minister Le Maire and the French government for, for their leadership uh, in the OECD. This is, um, if there were ever an issue that was just fundamentally international, where the, the, the cross-border inter interdependence was so undeniable, it's this, because ultimately, whether you're looking at revenue or whether you're looking at income, there's a fixed amount of money <laughs> in the world that is the subject of this discussion. And we have to have a principled, coherent, consistent way to determine how to allocate tax and rights with respect to that. Josh Kalmer of Zoom with his take on how we tackle the taxing of tech. That's pretty much all we have time for in what has been a superficial, but I think really interesting look at what happened at the Global Technology Governance Summit. People can find all of those sessions at wef.ch slash dtgs 
21. You can see all kinds of stuff on it across social media using the hashtag GTGS21, standing for Global Technology Governance Summit 21. Ina, thanks so much for joining me. How do people find your newsletter? The few people who will be listening to this who don't already subscribe. Yeah, you can just go to getlogin.axios.com. All we ask for is your email address, and I'd love to be in your inbox each morning. Watch the massive bump in numbers after this podcast. We're, we're beefing up our infrastructure as we speak. Ina Fried, thanks so much for joining me, and, uh, well... See you at the next one, I hope. Sounds good. Hopefully in Davos soon. To find out more about the Global Technology Governance Summit, please visit wf.ch slash gtgs21. And for an article that accompanies this episode of Radio Davos, complete with links to many of the sessions featured, please visit wf.ch slash podcasts, where you'll also find our back catalogue. Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts. And if you liked it, please leave us a nice review. And join the conversation at the World Economic Forum Podcast Club. Search for that on Facebook. This episode was written and presented by me, Robin Pomeroy, with studio production by Gareth Nolan. We'll be back soon. Thank you very much for listening. But for now, from Radio Davos, goodbye.